I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind at home. I'm delighted to welcome to our broadcast today, Dr. Jeffrey Matthews. He's professor and chairman of surgery at the University of Chicago. Uh, Welcome, doctor. Thank you so much, Alexander. It's nice to be with you. Doctor, you've seen on the front lines how surgery and the landscape of hospitals have been altered, perhaps permanently, as a result of COVID. I just wanted to give you an opportunity from the outset to explain that to our listeners and viewers. Thanks. It's, It's been an unprecedented time. And my perspective will be from someone who uh, runs a uh, major portion of what hospitals do, the surgical services, who is not a public health expert, who is not an expert on pandemics, uh, who is not an expert on uh, these kinds of disruptions that happen to a health system, and yet was in the middle of having to respond and create an approach from a a hospital and a hospital system uh, as uh, events unfolded over the course of the last couple of months. Uh, You know, we at the University of Chicago Medical Center had uh, stood up a uh, a command center and response team to begin to plan for the pandemic actually in January. But uh, the wave of patients didn't really start to hit us here in Chicago until March, really, sort of the middle of March, which is when we sort of went into the, the response mode. And we had to do a lot of things very quickly. We had to prepare uh, the, the hospital to be able to have the capacity to care for uh, uh, patients in unknown numbers uh, with inadequate uh, patient protective equipment, PPE, uh, without a, a, a real uh, toolkit or a playbook for what this virus was all about. Uh, We were seeing the experiences that were happening in Italy and seeing the experiences that were beginning to happen in this country in Washington and New York City. Uh, And trying to plan for that was not so simple. Uh, Fortunately, uh, in the state of Illinois and the city of Chicago, there was pretty good coordination uh, from the the state and and local level in terms of uh, sharing information. And so the hospitals could sort of work together in that kind of way. But we immediately had to shut down things like uh, elective surgical services. And as you know, that can be uh, not, not so easy to uh, define what types of surgery need to keep happening and which don't need to keep happening because we have to make sure that we have enough uh, bed capacity and ICU capacity to take care of patients. So the consequences of that, and if you think about the operational logistical challenges that it presents to for a hospital getting into that situation and then at uh, its maximum, Uh, how it was gonna handle and deploy the teams. And then now the phase that we're in, which is emerging from it, this is all pretty unprecedented. And as I say, there wasn't a playbook on how this had to happen. And in the intervening weeks and months that we anticipate possible resurgence of COVID cases, do you think that your hospital is, has that game plan and is better or even ideally equipped uh, to handle the situation? 
uh, I don't know if anybody is ideally equipped, but I feel much more confident about uh, our ability as an organization to understand what we need to do. Uh, we uh, very early on uh, uh, developed a system, I'll just speak for the point of view of surgical services because I think it illustrates the, the broader problem or the broader challenge that a hospital uh, has. We needed to very quickly ramp down our surgical services to create capacity. And we needed to do that in a way that was medically appropriate and ethically appropriate in terms of which patients would get the care when, which patients needed to be postponed. We, my team and I developed a system that uh, eventually was endorsed by the state of Illinois, the American College of Surgeons, uh, the American Hospital Association in terms of how to prioritize patients for what we termed medically necessary time-sensitive surgical procedures. And this approach to medically necessary time-sensitive surgical procedures was our blueprint during the pandemic for picking out which cases would proceed and which cases should be delayed or postponed depending upon the situation on the ground how many beds we had, how many ventilators we had, um, what were the uh, uh, particular uh, concerns about delaying surgery for somebody versus having it, having a, a surgery proceed uh, under a pandemic. We're using that same system to emerge from this, but what we've recognized is that we can really titrate this up and down depending upon conditions on the ground and uh, adjust very quickly should we see another wave. Fortunately, right now in Chicago, we have really, um, uh, over the last two or three weeks, really seen a dramatic number of hospitalized patients and a dramatic uh, decrease in the number of patients in the ICU and on ventilators due to COVID-related disease. If that starts to move in the other direction, we know what to do now because we have experience from the past few months. And uh, at this point, we are less concerned about availability of PPE and some of those other constraints that were uh, um, challenging before. Plus, I think we have better therapies and a better approach on how to actually treat the more severe disease than we did in the beginning of the pandemic. How did the pervasive comorbidities that patients were experiencing and that you all as medical professionals and doctors were grappling with, how did that factor into the surgical responses respectively um, across your hospital um, in, in terms of which surgeries were being most frequently employed? Right, that's a, that's a great question. And that was at the core of the question that we asked ourselves, which was how to um, understand which patients were too sick to have surgical procedures in a pandemic versus which patients were too well to have surgical uh, procedures during a pandemic when resources were limited. And we thought about it in a number of different dimensions. We thought about, and really for the first time, we've had to think about hospital resources. Did we have the beds? Did we have the capacity to do it? So what was our, what was our, our volume capacity? Could we do 10% of our usual volume? Uh, could we do 20%, 30%? And then we looked um, really specialty by specialty at the types of diagnoses that a patient might have that led them to uh, need a surgical intervention? And were there alternatives that could either be used on a temporary basis uh, or could things really be pushed back further? So for example, uh, if somebody uh, 
had a, uh, a cancer. So I take, uh, I'm a pancreas surgeon. So somebody with pancreas cancer who came up and was diagnosed during the pandemic, we had to ask ourselves, was it better to move ahead with surgery right away? Well, it turns out that we actually have the ability to treat with chemotherapy and radiation treatments upfront beforehand. And that's excellent treatment and actually a way that we're handling these cancers a lot uh, more anyway. So we would push uh, these patients towards having the chemotherapy and not surgery first. We knew that patients uh, that were at high risk of acquiring COVID could have bad outcomes from surgery. Uh, so people who say uh, had pre-existing lung disease, uh, people who smoked, or uh, people with asthma or other diseases, people who were overweight seemed to be at particular uh, uh, risk. And so those types of patients, we would uh, try harder to see whether we could postpone. So this system that we came up with actually scored the patients and its, its situations on multi-dimensions, hospital conditions, the, the, the uh, situation with respect to the pandemic and the risk of, of, uh, of delaying the surgery, and then the specific characteristics of the patient themselves. Where did they have lung disease, heart disease, immunosuppression, diabetes, these sorts of things. And we could come up with a score that actually is, has um, uh, performed very well in terms of giving us a sense that we were making the right decisions on who, uh, whose operation should, should go first. Now we're in a different phase, which is an even another interesting challenge, which is how to reintroduce the needed care for the patients who were postponed. And how do we decide which patients to do first? How do we uh, convince ourselves that it is safe to restart surgery so that the risk of a patient acquiring COVID either in the hospital or bringing COVID into the hospital uh, was, gonna, uh, was or wasn't going to be a problem. Uh, and so we are now, at our institution, University of Chicago, we are now ramped up to about 75 to 80% of our pre-pandemic surgical volumes. We still have a lot of patients waiting for care, though. Is your sense, doctor, that the mortality rate that we should ultimately define include deaths that were a function of, of not having medical care, not having surgical options, and that that too should be factored into how we assess the fallout from a human perspective. Yeah, I, I, I think that that is infor important information for us to uh, understand. Um, I, I am concerned as I see the statistics used for political purposes uh, and that that entry in rather than just sort of an understanding of what is happening and what happened. Um, I think that there's a little uh, bit of a risk in one direction or another about drawing too many conclusions from these kinds of data. There is no question that there are people who uh, whose um, outcomes from their condition is not optimal because t uh, surgery or other uh, medical interventions were delayed or diagnosis was, was delayed as a result of the pandemic. But compared to what? Compared to the situation where there was no pandemic? Okay, I understand that. Compared to the situation where we made different decisions during the pandemic? Well, I don't know. You know again, we didn't really have a playbook. Uh, nobody really knew, even the best public health experts, uh, didn't agree on exactly what needed to be done in which situation, in which city, in which country, in which health system, at what time. So I, right. I think that, yes, you're exactly correct that we need to think about that and assess that impact. 
because it has important implications for how we respond to disasters in the future. But I am a little bit, uh, you know, you read the headlines too, more than I do. Uh, I think there's, a, there's a, um, a, a jump to conclusions that can happen perhaps inappropriately. As it should be, and we should document for our viewers, this is still a pandemic. And yeah. while your hospital and hospitals where we're recording in New York have it somewhat under control, it took many weeks, actually months, for those conditions to re-emerge. We're still in a pandemic and we're experiencing heightened activity in major cities in states that really didn't have a quarantine or a stay-at-home order and then rather arbitrarily without any scientific or medical basis reopened. They're experiencing a, a, a new uh, climb of cases. And how many of your patients, doctor, have required secondary or tertiary surgeries after just recovering, whether in the hospital or once they were discharged, um, it seems like COVID is something that stays with a lot of patients and uh, the consequence is a, is a permanent one um, for, for your health. Right. The, the, uh, we, we are just beginning to get data uh, about a, a couple of different um, situations that you've outlined there. So there are the patients who never had COVID, who had to have their care, their surgery um, altered, postponed, delayed, um, because, they, uh, because of the pandemic and because of conditions on the ground. But they weren't personally affected by having the illness. There was the risk that they might acquire the, the, the illness when they were being treated. There's the risk that they might get the illness uh, uh, during their recovery phase from surgery, but there's that group of patients. We don't know what the impact was there on the delays, et cetera. Then there are patients who had emergency surgery during the time of COVID who may or may not have had COVID when they came in for their emergency surgery. Here at the south side of Chicago, we, where we see uh, uh, many patients through our trauma service, uh, there uh, continued to be a very high rate of trauma admissions. Some of those patients come in with whatever traumatic injury they have, a motor vehicle accident, a gunshot wound, they have to go to surgery. And during that time, we find out, did they actually have COVID when they got shot or when they were in the accident? And we know that the patients who have COVID, who have a surgical procedure, are at much greater risk of complications and death from those procedures. Then we have a group of patients that um, are in the uh, situation where they have urgent or semi-urgent surgery that needs to be done. And we don't know if they have COVID yet and we would like to make a choice. That's where the testing issue came in. Could we test all the patients preoperatively? Well, when we, when we didn't have tests available, we did, couldn't do that. Now, uh, you know, Governor Pritzker in Illinois came out on May 11th with uh, his uh, directive, which is actually informed by some of the work that we had been doing here at the University of Chicago to say that all patients who were having elective surgery needed to have a preoperative COVID test. That's great because knowing that the patient is in fact negative for COVID disease, doesn't have asymptomatic COVID disease, uh, makes us a little bit more comfortable that their surgical outcomes will be good. Uh, but, you know, somebody can have surgery and acquire COVID in the week or two after their operation and still have some, some, some bad outcomes there. In terms of health outcomes, after getting off a, a ventilator or respirator, what has been most commonly 
the, the symptoms and then the required surgical response because you've seen like a range of, of medical conditions. Um, we've seen stories about, um, of course, issues related to, to the lungs, but really across the whole body from, from the brain. Right. Well, we're just learning about this. And as I, as I say, said at the outset, as a, as a disclaimer, I'm not an infectious disease virology sure. um, expert, uh, and I'm a surgeon, so I don't have uh, the, the uh, firsthand experience with that. Uh, but I can say that uh, the, there is a long convalescence uh, for patients who had to uh, be cared for in an ICU setting or in a ventilator setting, and they recovered. Even if they recover, the 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 uh, the, the the full recovery is slow, and we are not that far into the pandemic to know how you know. Do they get back to 100% from that? Is it just a slow climb back, or there, is there actually permanent damage? We certainly know that there are some people who have severe consequences of COVID and will have permanent damage, whether it's lung. Or, uh, or heart damage, uh, but uh, can kidney damage people. Uh, some people are so ill that they uh, end up having some kidney failure as well. As, uh, as chairman of the Department of Surgery, what statistics are available to you right now at this stage of the pandemic um, that you can speak to about those kinds of required surgeries outside of the immediate treatment and putting someone on a respirator? We are, we, uh, well, in terms of surgical care, um, the, the, uh, what we know is that uh, patients who require an operation who have COVID, uh, symptomatic COVID disease, have worse outcomes. So for th types of operations that are normally do not um, have very high complication risks at all, a uh, cholecystectomy, a gallbladder removal operation, those actually have been reported to have very high death rates uh, in patients who actually have symptomatic COVID. What we don't really know yet, because the data still aren't here, but we're trying through consortiums to gather the data on this, is to understand if a patient has asymptomatic COVID disease, they've been exposed to the virus, do they also have a worse outcome and by how much? And the fact is, we don't know the answer to that question yet. So we're dealing with a lot of unknowns and we're dealing with a lot of unknown unknowns uh, in, in answering those questions. Um, we don't have access to the kind of data that, that you're um, implying, uh, which would be incredibly helpful uh, to us because it simply hasn't accumulated yet and it hasn't gone through peer review and, and all of that. So with we respect to- what we're, We see here, but sure. we know that the numbers of patients that we have in our hospital are not enough to be, you know, a statistically meaningful snapshot to be able to draw broad conclusions. Right. So when it comes to uh, cardio or neurological function and heart attacks or strokes that folks have had while they were symptomatic or after some measure of recovery, we just don't know the answer yet. We don't know how like we know that it happens. Yeah. Uh, and we think we, uh, there are ideas about why it might happen, this microvascular disease, this, this predilection for forming small blood clots and these sorts of things. But we don't know how often it happens and how severe. We just don't have the data yet. Again, Dr. This Matthews, thing. Yeah. what would you suggest, um, it would be helpful to know from a public policy perspective, what you would like to hear from the state and federal authorities on how we can improve outcomes. In your distinctive purview, uh, as someone who has helped organize 
a major hospital's response to the epidemic, to the pandemic, what kinds of policy reforms, either internally within hospital systems or externally um, from HHS or other medical authorities, would you like to see implemented that you find to be really critical uh, looking at this in hindsight now? Well, I would say that uh, that's a great question, and there's so many ways that one could take that question, but I will start with the most important one, is that this pandemic has highlighted the systemic uh, uh, problems that we have with racism in this country and how that has impacted communities and access to health. The fact that we've had problems in uh, in um, uh, uh, different uh, socioeconomic and different uh, geographies in our cities of how patients are affected by COVID and how they can seek disease just highlights the big public health issue on access to care. This, more than anything else, has just dram dramatized what we've known for decades about the inequities in our system uh, in terms of access to care and outcomes for care. If we can't act on, on the basis of COVID uh, to, uh, to implement a more um, a just uh, health system uh, in this country, then we haven't really learned our lesson. So there's that broad issue. I would say specifically the other thing that has uh, been highlighted is the need to have better state and national coordination for uh, hospital supplies. You know, hospitals are in, uh, uh, you know, this, this business of medicine. Uh, if you look at our supply chain and supply chain management, um, it has been managed incredibly tightly over the last, uh, you know, couple of years, decades or so, as hospitals have tried to do this just-in-time, uh, you know, inventory kinds of work and all that. When you're talking about things like N95s and other PPEs, to then be in a situation where we don't have a, a supply chain for that in, a, in, a, uh, in an emergency, that's really something that needs to be addressed. So I think it's time to rethink how we stockpile. It's re, uh, 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 time to rethink how we stock in our hospitals and inventory in our hospitals for some of these critical things. And the idea that we have international supply chains on them for some of these critical items may not be the best uh, uh, approach. Those would be two areas that I think are incredibly important to be looking at at the state and federal level. And would you say that, that part of the issue is the inequity within medical centers or hospital systems um, in terms of how they're staffed or the resources they have. Um, I know you're getting at the inequities socially and culturally, um, pre-existing conditions being more prevalent in lower income communities. Uh, but would you also say the, the level of care or the accessibility of care, or, or is it really before you even get to the doctor or hospitals? Well, it's at, at many different levels. If somebody has more out-of-pocket expenses or they can't um, uh, leave their work because, they'll, uh, because they won't have health insurance and they can't seek access to care, uh, you know, that's a problem. And, and you know, uh, you can go in many different levels here. You know, I think at the University of Chicago, we are a tertiary academic medical center that takes care of the most complex disease and all of that. We're pretty well staffed and we work pretty well. But we on the south side of Chicago provide maybe 10%, 15% of the care on the south side. And there are a lot of hospital partners that we have here on the south side and a lot of places that care is delivered in uh, federally qualified health centers, uh, in, in uh, uh, clinics and doctor's offices 
that simply are not resourced to the way that they, they could be because the population is underinsured or uninsured uh, and we don't really have the ability to pay for what's needed. So when you have a dramatic event like a pandemic or you could imagine another mass casualty event, the system is not uh, capable to be able to flex up to provide those uh, those needs. As a final line of inquiry, doctor, the question about inequity is a severe and pervasive one. In the midst of the pandemic, uh, in the absence of a therapeutic or vaccine, this is not going away. So there's the argument, there's really the opportunity, perhaps with a new administration for holistic reform, uh, the kind of access to coverage and care that you're envisioning. But realistically, knowing the difficulty of health reform under the Affordable Care Act and the subsequent updates to that legislation and the attempts to undo it, what could be realistic in the pandemic? Do you go big or do you go more specific in the meeting the needs of the communities most affected and, and really plagued by this pandemic? Well, I think that's... Uh, 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 that is the question, uh, and it's something that uh, all of us could have opinions on, and I'm not sure that my opinion is, is more informed than many uh, policymakers and really thoughtful people who have, uh, who have worked on this. I just believe that uh, we need to take uh, the, um, we need to provide basics for uh, health care, for access to care, um, and fund it uh, in a way perhaps uh, uh, more fully implementing the Affordable Care Act so that just at baseline, uh, we don't have this dependence on uh, employer-backed uh, health systems and we have a better sort of public approach, you know, whether that's Medicare for all or some sort of basic level of care that can be provided so that at least uh, primary services can, can be given. I, that doesn't seem like it was out of reach I think we were well down a path for that in years past. I think there was more consensus on that before it got too politicized. And I think if we can go back to that, we will have made a, a, a lot of progress that really did help. Uh, so if we can get some of that, you know, I think more sweeping reform is ultimately needed, but you're right, the pol politics of that is extremely difficult. Dr. Jeffrey Matthews, chairman of the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago and professor of medicine. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Alexander. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.